Father, as we once again come to your word, we ask that you would uh, be glorified, you would be magnified as we have prayed, um, be lifted up and made, made greater in our vision, for you are already the greatest. And Lord, as we come to your word, as we consider uh, what the Apostle James had to say to the church of his day and how it uh, affects us in our church in our day, uh, Lord, we ask always that we hear from you, uh, not that we hear from me, um, but that your Spirit speaks through your Word. Uh, and in speaking to us, your Holy Spirit calls us to be like Christ, to be united with Him, and to know Him better, and in knowing Him better, uh, to know you, our Father, um, a little bit better. Help us as we journey together and, and walk together as a body um, in, Excuse me, in the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I've mentioned, and I'm going to continue to mention, the book of James is, is written, James is writing to the church, um, the persecuted church that is dealing with the pressures that come from living in a world that's opposed to them. Now one of the things that is going on, um, and if, if you haven't caught this note, one of the things that's happening in the book of James, the, the epistle of James, is that um, this is probably written shortly after uh, the Jewish elites in Jerusalem ha had persecuted the church. We have the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts. And they were starting to spread out. And they're sorting out what does it mean to be the church. And so often when we read James, we read individual verses and we, we interpret those individual verses as uh, isolated units, what's called pericope, if you really want a technical term. Um, but James does not write that way. This is a coherent argument. And so we have to make sure we connect everything to everything else. James is, is pulling a bunch of strands of things together. And contrary to what Martin Luther said, uh, Martin Luther described James as the straw epistle, that it really only works if, you're, if you already know um, the rest of the Bible. And that is true of all books of the Bible. You really have to know how they connect to everything else. Uh, but James is actually making a very, very tight argument about the relationships of believers within the church and how we're supposed to connect to one another and what we're supposed to do. And so previously, I'm going to read uh, just the, the last verse of chapter 3 because chapter 4 flows from chapter 3. The chapter divisions were not inspired. James didn't, start, didn't stop and write chapter 4, um, which interestingly um, is delta, all right, D, um, in Greek, would he, he would put a big triangle at the top. He didn't do that. He's just keeping, he just keeps writing through, all right? And so in chapter 3 and verse 18, he says this, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So in other words, you are the peace that you want to see. That, that the righteous believers have to be the ones who start peace. We can't sit around and wait for peace. Now, if only Jesus had said something like that. Um, oh, yeah, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Jesus said that. Not blessed are the peace experiencers, all right, but the peacemakers. You are the peace that you desire. So rather than sitting around and waiting for peace to be made, you should be making peace. Now, there's a whole other sermon in that. We're not going to get into it, but I want to get the context of that so that you can understand what happens in chapter 4. Now, I'm going to read all of chapter 4. What causes quarrels? 
What causes fights among you? This is the question every parent has asked of their children. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, I'm going to remind you here that he's talking to the church, not to individuals. So when he says the passions that are, are at war within you, he's not just talking about your individual passions, but the passions that are at war within the church. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I'm going to go against mainstream here, and I apologize to anyone that's ever taught this verse this way, but I'm going to tell you that this verse is not talking about prayer. There's no context here where, where James is talking about prayer. So often this verse gets pulled out of prayer. Well, if you ask God for something, he will give it to you. That's not what he's saying here. Right? The context of this is the interpersonal relationships of people in the church. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. What a random statement. We're going to come back to that. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Did he just switch gears? He just suddenly stop and the pericope ended and he starts talking about something else? He, this is all going to fit together. We're going to talk about it. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose, to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, the Scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Again, did he just switch gears? Wasn't he just talking about humbling yourself before God? Now suddenly he's talking about speaking evil to his brothers? What's going on? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But you are, who are you? to judge your neighbor. And just a side note, when he says law there, he's not talking about the Old Testament. If you remember earlier in the book of James, James talks about looking into the perfect law of liberty, and the perfect or fulfilled law of liberty is Christ. Think not that I've come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill the law. All right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So he's talking about, when he talks about the law, he's talking about Jesus. Right, so think not that. Uh, so uh, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Again, did he just make, switch gears? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So what is James dealing with here? I want to I suggest to you that, that James is making a four-part argument. I just held up five fingers. Kids, learn math. All right? A four-part argument. And I'm going to give you those four parts in case you're keeping notes so that you can keep everything straight. The first part is verses 1 through 3, where he's dealing with the, the issue of envy. All right? Where comes fighting? What causes fights? What causes quarrels in your life? And he says, he goes through and he talks about, he says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? Is it not that you desire what other people have? That you're looking for what other people have. And you look at this person and you go, well, they have this and I want that. So I pray to God to give me whatever it is that I want because that's what I want. All right, I want what I want and so... I, I look at everybody else that has what I want, and I, I want to get that thing. He says, so where do these fightings, where do these fights, where do these quarrels come from? Where are all the issues inside the church that are happening? What motivates you? It's because you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. That's why he said, he calls them in verse 4, you adulterous people. What is adultery if it isn't looking at what another man has or another woman has and desiring that other person? Looking at another man's wife and saying, I want her, she's better than what I've got. Looking at another man's, another woman's husband, another man's husband, that just opened a whole can of worms. Looking at another woman's husband and saying, I want my husband to be like him. It is even, and I know this sounds a little weird, it is in alignment with that same kind of adulterous thinking. Looking at somebody else's kids and saying, I wish my kids were more like theirs. Looking at somebody else's job or house or car and saying, I wish that I had that. And is it any surprise that covetousness leads into fights and quarreling? And James is dealing with this whole issue of, for lack of a better term, economic class. He deals with it in chapter 2. He talks about people giving deference to those with a nice ring or the nice clothes. Here, you sit here in the honored seat and all you losers sit in the back. You're back in coach. Get back there, all right? Close the curtain, all right? We, they, that, that's kind of that, that mentality, the idea that, you know, that's what he's dealing with in the church. And he says, and so there are those in the, in the back looking at the wealthy and looking at the rich and go, man, I wish I had what they have, and it's breeding fights and quarrels in the church. But then why does he switch to talk about the friendship with the world in chapter 4? So here's the second section. The first section, verses 1 through 3, is dealing with envy. And then in in, in verses 4 through 10, he starts talking about friendship with the world, but really what he's talking about, and and again, he's he's alluding to things that his half-brother Jesus said. Jesus said you cannot serve two gods. You cannot serve God and mammon. Right? You can't ter- serve two masters. You, you have to choose. And he says, to be friendship, a friendship with the world is enmity with God. And you say, what is enmity? Enmity is to enemy what friendship is to friend. All right? Enmity is the description of a relationship between two enemies. And so why are you being an enemy of God? You're being a friend of the world and an enemy of God. Why? 
because you want what somebody else has? Or because you desire something? You basically cannot, basically his argument is, you cannot both desire what someone else has and be content and submitted to God. Those two things, because submission to God means saying, okay, God, what you've given me is what you've given me, and I'm going to serve you with what I have. Envy is, God, I would be so much better at serving you if I had what so-and-so has. God, if you could give me, and is it any wonder that when he says, you, ask, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive. He says, you're asking for the wrong thing. Instead of asking for the heart of submission and humility before our God and service and responsibility, you're asking, you're asking each other or you're not asking, all right? You're asking for the wrong things. You're going, why don't I have this? You adulterous people, right? So then he goes and he talks about jealousy and, and he talks about grace and, and God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he, he challenges the church. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, right? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now exalt is very different. It's an interesting term because it is not a change of status, all right? So I, in, the, in the bulletin, we had a little handout about the word magnify. In, in Latin, magnificare, the, the, the word magnify, it means that somebody gets, um, gets, like somebody does something really great, and so they come to the Senate and they say, didn't I do something great? And the Senate goes, yes, you did something. Not our Senate, the Roman Senate. I don't know if you guys know that. All right? But the Roman Senate, all these people in purple robes and stuff, and they yes, you are wonderful, and they would literally move you up a step. That's magnificare. So your seat would be bumped up one more step so everybody could see you. And of course, the highest seat in the Senate was the principate, all right, or the princep, the, the ruler, the emperor, all right, although that word wasn't actually legally defined in Rome until the 5th century or the 4th century. But, but they, they would bump you up and say, all right, yeah, you know, we're going we're gonna to be the, um, you're, you're one step higher. And of course, the people in the highest seats, they were the magnificent ones. So they're being bumped up in status. All right? And so it's interesting, the Bible always uses that term not for ourselves, but for God. Okay? That God is magnified in our perceptions. We are not magnified. Instead, James says you will be exalted. What does that mean? It means lifted up out of the mud to where you belong. When you humble yourself before God, when you, you finally get to the point where you say, okay, God, what you've given me is what you've given me. I understand. I, I am content with what, I've been, what you have given to me. Help me and teach me how to walk. He stands you up on your feet and he lets you walk. So it's not taking somebody that's already standing and moving them up a step, but rather taking someone who is face down and standing up so they can walk. That's what he's talking about. He says, humble yourself before the Lord so you can be exalted. You cannot go forward as a believer until you first bow before your God. And this is a lesson that we continually need to learn as believers because we continually want God to do stuff with us standing on our own power and saying, God, here I am. Aren't you blessed to have me? Use me for what you need me to use. Instead, God says, first, humble yourself. And then I will put you, I will stand you up and send you where you need to be. 
Um, by the way, this may very well be, and it could be, it could not be, we don't have a clear statement, but it may be James remembering the situation with the Apostle Paul, who when the resurrected Christ appears to the Apostle Paul, he knocks him down, and Paul lays on the ground, and God says, get up, rise up. So there's an interesting possible illusion. We know that James knew Paul. We knew that Paul knew James. So it's possible, and James had heard Paul recount his story. So um, just kind of an interesting little nugget for your imagination to run wild with. Um, but he says, humble yourself, right? So this second section is a, is a question about, all right, so the first question is envy. The second question is, who do you think God is? So, so it, here's your envious life, right? Well, who's God? Who is God? He, he's bringing them this question. It's like, is this really, is your, your spiritual life, your journey uh, about you and you acquiring things or about God and humbling ourselves before him and submitting to him and cleaning our hands, right? All these things that he says, um, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why are they double-minded? Because they're trying to serve two masters, they're trying to serve the things that they envy, they want to acquire, and they also want to be considered godly. You can't worship what everybody else has and worship Christ because Christ is our sufficiency. So if you're living in envy, you need to lay that on the ground and find your sufficiency in Him, in whom all things move. All right? So the second second. Uh, you, you're living envious, right? He's talking to the church. He said, you got an issue with envy, and envy is looking at somebody that's more on the next step up from me and going, I wish I had what they have. He said, who's God? All right, this is his, his second section. Then his third section, right, in verses 11 and 12, he starts talking about speaking evil against your neighbor. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, this is the opposite side of envy, all right, this is condescension. Remember that he said in chapter 1 that true religion is this, right? To care for the widows and the orphans. The church that James is writing to has a problem not only with envying those who are higher than them, but also condescending, being condescending toward those who are lower than them. So looking at, looking at everybody, I want what they have, but it's so good I don't have what they have. They're, they're living in this world, this tension between their desires and their ego. Their ego is motivating the desires to want what other people have, but their ego is also making them judge those who are less than them. Oh, well, at least. And again, does the Apostle, does the Apostle James have in the back of his head Jesus telling the parable of the publican and the Pharisee, where the Pharisee prays, Dear God, thank you so much that I'm not a sinner like this publican. Right? Oh God, you're so blessed to have me. Do not speak evil. He says, because when you speak evil, when you judge, you're judging the law. You're judging Christ. Well, what did Jesus say? He said, um, at one point he said that, he, that God will judge his false disciples. And he will say, that Jesus will say to them, he says, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And they'll look at him and say, well, we never saw you thirsty. We never saw you naked. We never saw you hungry. And he has a, a little kid. He says, if you've done this to one of these... 
He says, I'm present with this situation. When you care for the poor, it's not because you feel bad for the poor. It is because Christ cares for the poor. And, and our relationship with Him moves us not to judge those who are less blessed than us, but to be a blessing to those who are less blessed than us. Now, I will tell you that in order to be a blessing to those that are not as blessed as you, you have to be comfortable and you have to find a submission and a humility in what God has given to you. And we live in a world where everybody wants what they don't have. I read a news article this morning, yesterday, and again, no offense to anybody that spent this kind of money. The average wedding reception in 2021, $22,000. What are we thinking? A wedding reception, my wife will tell you that this is absolutely true. When we got married, I wanted to get married in her parents' backyard with my dad doing the service and have a barbecue and tell everybody that all the money they wanted to spend on the reception they could give to us as a down payment on a house. And guess how much of that $22,500 that people are spending on their reception? Keep in mind, that's the average. So there are people spending a lot more. For every one of us who spends 75 bucks on our reception... There's somebody spending $100,000. And by the way, this isn't new. I had a friend in 1996, he got married and spent $27,000 on his wedding, on his, his reception. And I, I, I remember just saying to him, and the, and the weird thing was, and not to get into this, but the weird thing is, he, was already, he had been living with his girlfriend for like five years. I'm like, what are you guys celebrating? You already got kids. Like, dude, just go to the registry, get a license and spend that money on college, Right? And, 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 but what, where is most of this money coming from? It's being put on credit cards, on lines of credit, on things like that. People aren't saving up. You know, they're spending on credit. They're hoping that they will have the money in the future to spend it. Uh, you know that the average debt load of a student graduating from an Ivy League college is in six figures. Holy moly. Because no one can pay off a six-figure loan like a 23-year-old college graduate. But why are we doing it? Because you've got to have it. You've got to have it. And I keep telling all my nieces and nephews, I keep telling them, like, get into a trade. At this point, HVAC people, plumbers, electricians, they can name their price right now. And they're like, yeah, but they're going to get my hands dirty. Listen, if you can make 200 bucks an hour... You know, instead of spending $200,000 on a degree, I have a degree in art criticism. Well, that'll be great for the five jobs that cover that in the United States. Enjoy your work at McDonald's. Anyway, um, so, uh, by the way, that's true of theology degrees, by the way, too. I don't know if you know this, that only one in 25 seminary graduates actually have a ministry job. Um, and because I do... Wait, I had a ministry job before I was a seminary. I don't know. Anyway. Um, anyway, so, but what is it, what am I talking about? I'm talking about people, all of this motivation, all of this ego I have to have. He, who is God? And then he hits the last section, right? And what does this have to do with it? Right? 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Again, I think Jesus' parables in his head. Jesus tells the parable about a farmer who has a huge harvest, and so he tears down his silos so that he can um, 
so that he can build a bigger silo because he's going to be rich and wealthy and then he's having a party and it all gets destroyed. He says, um, you say, how do you, how do you know that James has this in his head? I don't, but listen, if the Messiah was my half-brother, I would remember everything he said. It would influence me some way. All right? Um, he says, do not speak evil against another brother. So again, he's, he's coming back to this thing. And then verse, four, verse 13, today or tomorrow, he says, but you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This, by the way, happens very often in Israel. All right? Um, because, the, because of the way the humidity works there, it's not uncommon for there to be a mist in the morning and then it disappears by about like 8 a.m. Right? This is a very common thing in the Middle East. Um, he says, you're, you're like a mist. You appear for a little while and then vanish. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And, and what does this have to, what is he talking about? So he's talking about envy. Then he talks about who is God. And then he deals with judging. He's dealing with condescension. And now he says, and who are you? Who are you? You're just a mist. You're just a vapor. Why boast on what we've acquired or what we're going to acquire or what we're going to do, we're going to accomplish? Now, I'm not saying don't plan, don't think, don't, don't, don't look forward, but his point is, why are you so focused on what you will accomplish and what you will achieve rather than what on God will accomplish and God will achieve? A church under pressure James is writing to a church that's struggling. They're going through persecution. They're looking for solutions. And when desperate people are looking for solutions, how often do they choose the right one? I remember very distinctly at one point, it, those of you that have lived in Merrimack know that there is something in our water. Many things in our water. Something in our water eats through anything that might keep a seal on a sink. And I have replaced every single sink in our parsonage in the 10 years that we have lived there. And we were working, at, we had our, our bathroom, our master bathroom. I noticed that there was something going on with the, the valve. You know, you, you closed it and it didn't quite close. So, you know, it was one of those ones with the screw in the top, and you screw it down a little bit, just kind of tighten the seal a little bit. And it's like, okay, it's good for now. I probably should get around to replacing that. And then you go, ah, it's all right. And then, <laughs> you know where this story is going. Um, one day, we turned it, and that bad boy popped off. Like, I mean, like a cork. Like, doing! And there was water everywhere just spraying and spraying and we're grabbing buckets and hair nets and towels and we're like quick 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 and of course it, you also know if you lived in Merrimack for a while you know that if you don't regularly test your your shutoff valves they tend to get kind of crudded up well I didn't know that at the time so I went to turn the shutoff valve and the handle came off in my hand so now I'm soaked in water in my bathroom, water is pouring, dogs are trying to get in, cats quite curious what's going on. My daughter's asleep in the other room, she don't care. My wife and I are scrambling, we're throwing buckets in the sink and everything. I'm like, I gotta go turn the main off, which of course I should have really figured out where that was. 
at some point in my house. So, so, oh my gosh, it's going crazy. I run downstairs and I find the main and I turn it off. And of course, you know, you, you know, when you turn the main off, the water doesn't stop like immediately. There's water in the line. There's pressure. Nicole's like, it's not working. It's not working. You know, yelled through the house. Was like, <laughs> And I mean, once you're done, right, once you've gotten through that crisis, you're looking around and like you have wrecked important stuff, right? Like you, I was like using my wife, this didn't really happen. I was using my wife's jewelry box to, you know, I mean, like there's all, there's stuff that's ruined. There's makeup that got wet. There's things, you know, floating in water on the floor. You know, you're trying to mop stuff up and the carpet looks a little, you know, oh, this is going to get moldy if I don't remember to shop vac it, which of course I'm not going to remember to do. And, and, you know, all these things. And, and you look around and you go, wow, I we really looked for any solution in that crisis. Well, that's, that's what this church is at. They're, they're looking for any solution to their crisis. And James is reminding them that it's very, very easy for us to look at ourselves instead of looking to God. It's very easy for us to keep our focus on me, to be egocentric in my faith. So I look at somebody, I'm like, well, you know, I mean, we're having trouble, but look at that church, how great that church is doing. That church over in Antioch, Pisidia, they're, they're doing fantastic. I wish that we had what they have, man. And, and God must not love us because he didn't bless us like them. And then we turn around and go, but he loves us more than those guys. Those poor losers in Jerusalem getting hunted down by the Sadducees. You know, we're, we're loose and free. We've got no money. We've got no stuff. But, you know. And he says, who is God? Humble yourself before him. Who are you? You're just a vapor. We so often gauge God's goodness by our feelings. And we judge, we, we gauge God's uh, wrath and judgment based on our feelings. We have these first world issues of Jesus, God persecuting us. It's like, oh God, my third car won't start. Why are you doing this to me? Oh God, my retirement fund, it's down 5%. Why are you doing this to me? Very first world attitude toward what God is doing. You know, when you think about it, and, and I don't mean to put too sharp an edge about it, but we sit there and we go, oh, my child, you know, my child is having trouble in school, or, or, or my child has allergies, right? It's like, oh, allergies, we've been burdened with a, a, a bee allergy. And I don't mean to knock anybody that's got a bee allergy, right? That's nice to know. Um, but I know lots of people with bee allergies. But, you know, it's pretty, pretty easy, right? They, they get their EpiPen and they just keep it with them. I have a friend who has a bee allergy and never remembers his EpiPen. So we'll be sitting outside. He's like, he's like, do you see any bees? I'm like, did you see your EpiPen in your car? Right, you know, no, no knocking on anybody that doesn't remember that. But, um, you know, we look at it and we go, oh my gosh, that's so terrible. When we realize that the, the child morbidity in the rest of the world, like in Africa and, 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 and most of Asia, like children born with ghastly things that can be prevented with what we consider regular prenatal treatment, like it's just the average everything, and we go, oh, my child, you know, has a minor issue. My, my child, one eye is slightly lower than the other. God is punishing me. My child is a problem child. Like, my kid doesn't go to sleep. I was like, at least your child has all their limbs, all their eyes, 
is not, is not paralyzed because they had uh, uh, meningitis as an infant and had no way to get through it. Or your child isn't dealing with dengue fever every day or drinking water that's shared with, the, with animals that foul in it. And we go, oh, God is punishing me. You don't know what that means. Sorry. Our scale is totally based on our experience. Now, every human being is like that. We scale God's blessing or God's punishment on us by our own experience. James says, stop. Stop looking those who have more and envying them. Stop looking at those who have less and condescending to them. Humble yourself before God and recognize that you are just a vapor. So just do God's will now. Just do God's will now. Well, what do I do about tomorrow? When tomorrow is now, do God's will then. But do God's will now. There is a sacredness to the moment. If you live entirely in the past, you will live. If, all you worry about is everything that went wrong in the past. You're going to live in guilt. If you worry about what's going wrong in the future, all you're ever going to do is live in anxiety. But the moment now is sacred. Submit to God. And he will exalt you. Recognize that it is about doing his will now. And you will find that you have less desire to fight and quarrel because you don't have what others have. You will find that you're less interested in asking for things that others have just because you don't have them. When you are content with who you are, where you are, doing what God has called you to do, and you do his will now, Whoever knows the right thing to do, verse 17, and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Here's God's will. Yeah, but so-and-so's better. Sin. Here's God's will. Yeah, but I got more than them. Sin. God, here I am. Use me as I am. Sin. Humble ourselves before God. Submit to Him. Cleanse our hands of all of the darkness of the world and do His will now. And if you don't want to do His will now, and I know this is going to offend people, if you do not, you are coming up with reasons not to do God's will now, you have a problem with God, and you need to fix it. If you say, I'll do God's will later, you have a problem. You are telling the creator of the universe and the savior of your soul and life and the giver of eternity, tomorrow, later, I have plans. Can you imagine, and I'll close with this, can you imagine that and, and I'm going to use a, a, a weird illustration, and it'll. It's, but can you imagine that Tom Brady showed up at our church? Now that would be an extraordinary thing because we know Tom Brady does not go places that are cold anymore. Tom Brady showed up at our church and said, "Hey guys, just want to play a game of seven-on-seven football. Who's up for it?" And some of us are like, "Yeah," and and somebody goes. 
Can we do it tomorrow? I'm busy. I have priorities. I got to watch the Buccaneers. Oh, wait. But that's what we do to God. Our envy, our condescension, our judgment, it's saying to God, your will later, my will now. Your desires later, my passions now. We wouldn't do that to Tom Brady. We wouldn't do that to anybody famous that came in and said, you know, said, hey, do you want to take a picture with me? Can we do it tomorrow? Can you just take a picture of yourself and Photoshop me in later? No, we want that picture. And the God of the universe calls us to his will. Why are we wasting time on envy and judgment when we have are but a vapor serving the one who is eternal? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we ask only for the strength to serve you in the moment. Help us to focus on the task at hand, to humble ourselves before you so that you can raise us up and move us forward to accomplish what you've given us. Lord, in so many ways, so many people in our congregation and throughout the world are doing that every day. Lord, we always need the reminder of who this is all about. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for you. Give us the strength. Give us the spiritual insight. Give us the wisdom, direction. Give us the motivation. Give us the humility to bow before you and do what you call us to do. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace forever.